All right, good morning again. Good to be with you. Uh, if you're visiting, really glad that you're here. Uh, we are in Psalm 19 today. So if you have a Bible, that's where we're going to be. If you don't have one, verses will be up on the screen. And if you don't have one and you want one, we have Bibles at our Connect desk that are, we have them so we can give them away as gifts to you. And so uh, we'd, we'd love to give one to you. Just stop by after service. Uh, we just finished a sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount. So Sermon on the Mount is three chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, five, six, and seven. Uh, and now we're going to work through a series of Psalms as a church. It's just kind of how we go through our teaching. We pick parts of the Bible and we read the whole part and we, we let God speak to us from it uh, because we believe the Bible is God's word and we want to hear what it is he has to say without uh, skipping over any of it or, or taking it out of context or anything like that. Um, but when you get to all different parts of the Bible, what you find is uh, the Bible sounds very different in different places. Parts of the Bible are uh, historic narrative. Parts of the Bible are prophecy. Parts of the Bible are, um, are, are letters. They're personal letters that contain a lot of theology. You find a lot of that in the New Testament. And then parts are poetry. And that's where the Psalms uh, falls under that category. The wisdom literature of the Old Testament, uh, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, those are wisdom literature, and we mainly find poetry in it. And like God's Word is always speaking to us. Uh, he, he speaks to us in different ways, but I think what we find in the wisdom literature in particular, because it's poetry, is it's, it's mainly aimed at engaging with our hearts first, and then our, our minds become engaged along the way. Uh, whereas other parts of the Bible, I think it engages our mind first, it presents us with this truth, and we think through it, and we see how it's reasonable, and then it engages our heart along with it. Um, but in Psalms, it just has this way of moving our hearts to marvel at the beauty of God. And I think that's what we find in Psalm 19. I think it does it especially well. Psalm 19 is all about um, where do you get to know about God from? Like, how can you get to know him? Uh, what does knowing God mean for you? Right? How does it change things for you? And the, the answer that Psalm 19 gives us about how is it that you hear about God says there's two ways, primarily two ways that you get to hear about God. We hear about God through his world, through the world that he's created, and we hear about God through his word, the word that he's given us. And when we hear about God through the world that he's created and that he's put us in, we get general information about God. Generally, we get to know who he is and what he's like by looking at the things that he's made. And then through his word, we get to know about him specifically because he tells us, this is, these are the things that I want you to know. Um, and so those are you know, broadly what we're gonna get into today. Uh, what is it that we get to know about God from these things? these two places. So Psalm 19, verse 1, says this. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Psalm 19 tells us 
the, the reality of a creator God is self-evident to anyone who simply observes the world around them. That, that essentially everything in creation, everything that God has made, if you're looking at it, it's trying to tell you about the one who, who made it. The heavens are declaring the glory of God, the sky's proclaiming his handiwork, day to day pours out speech and it goes through all the earth. You see the, the sun and the moon and like the two stars that we see around here because there's light pollution. But if you go further out and the sky that they would have seen when they wrote the Psalms where there's no light pollution, if you get somewhere real remote, like 10 years ago, I went on this camping trip uh, up in the Adirondacks and that's like one of the things that stands out to me the most from that trip is at night, it was stunning. Like the stars that fill the sky and you just see how vast everything is. And it, it kind of gives you this sense of like, I'm so small. Like I'm such a small part, not only of this world, but of like the vastness of all of creation. I'm just this, this little small thing over, and the one who, who's the source of it all, the one who's over it, how great and awesome must he be? Like to be the one who's transcendent over it, who's the source of all of it, who's sustaining all of it, the one who's, you know, all of this is born from his mind. Like that is incredible to think about the one who could be the creator of all of this. And that's how the heavens are declaring his glory. And we can pretend that they're not, you know, uh, we, we can pretend that when we, when we see all of creation, we see the vastness of the heavens and the, uh, the incredible things in the earth, we can pretend that we don't see how this is possibly pointing to someone who's ordered it and made it and arranged it in such a way that we can actually appreciate the beauty of it. And, and I, I do want to acknowledge, you know, you might be here today and that's where you're at. You, you look at the world and you're not fully convinced and you think, well, um, you know, maybe the, the universe is just a natural thing. Maybe it's a naturally occurring thing and therefore we are kind of an accident. We just happen to be here. There's not much more deeper meaning or purpose to our lives than that. Um, to anyone who might be there, I, I want to bring our attention to, to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul is talking about the, um, the judgment from God that is revealed against all unrighteousness, all evil, and all sin, and that he's a God of justice. He's not going to let evil things go unpunished. He's going to make everything right in the end. That's who he is. And because we stand in a place where we are guilty of sin and, and our lives are full of unrighteousness and, and ungodliness. We, we rightfully deserve to be on the receiving end of that justice. And that puts us in a spot where it makes us very uncomfortable. We have this, this uh, 
this feeling that, that that's true and that if there were to be a reckoning for my life at the end of it, things might not go so well for me. And what we've done is we've suppressed the truth that could be plainly known about God just by looking at the things that he's made. And the reason we do that is because we're trying to protect ourselves. We don't, we don't like to feel guilty. We don't like to live in the fear of a coming judgment. And it would be much more convenient and more comfortable for us if we could convince ourselves that the reality we're in, God's not part of it. There is no God of justice. There is no reckoning. Happy accident and then it's gone, it's done. Um, there's no such thing as accountability in a purely natural world. And so what I'm saying is, and what I think Paul is saying is, uh, people have a personal interest in disregarding the things that they could know about God if, if they, if they um, allowed their, their minds to go to the natural conclusion from the things that they see. Uh, and, and that's what happens. Their, their thinking becomes futile and their hearts become dark and they get to a place where they, they can't see God, they can't see any, uh, any evidence of him or anything that, that points to his existence because they come from a place where they don't want to see him. They don't want to see him, they don't see him, and then increasingly they're unable to see him. According to Paul, we can know a good deal about God simply from looking at the things that he's made. We can know his invisible attributes, his uh, eternal power, and his divine nature. When you see the vastness of everything, and you, and you just, you see, he points at the sun in Psalm 19. You see the, the glory of the sun that he's created and set in the sky. That, like, we can't, we can't stare at the sun without damaging our eyes. And there's, there's a God who placed it there. Like, we can know so much about, man, just how big and vast and unimaginably powerful this God is who created everything. And you see it from, uh, from how balanced the world is that, that we live in, how, how complex and complicated life is here on this earth. And we, we, we see only more and more of it the more uh, scientific discoveries progress. So like in, uh, in philosophy, and it's used in apologetics, there's this thing known as the fine-tuning argument. And uh, the fine-tuning argument looks at how probable the universe that we're in, the way that it exists now, that it can support life, how probable that is, and it's, it's very improbable. It points to, uh, if you're like physics nerds, then you'll love this. Um, I don't think nerds is like an insult, and I don't mean it as one, so like I hope that doesn't you know, be a physics nerd, it's cool. Um, be a Bible nerd too, being a nerd is awesome. Uh, in the fine-tuning argument, they look at the four fundamental forces, the strong uh, nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, the electromagnetic force, and the gravitational force. If you don't care about this, you can just tune me out. Um, but the values that those four forces have were set essentially in the same breath as the Big Bang, and, and they haven't moved since. I don't know how they know that, but they say they do. Uh, and if those values were uh, minorly adjusted in different ways, uh, you can look into this whole rabbit trail, but you can see how vastly different that would make uh, the composition of the universe uh, such that it might not even exist, or if it did, it, it, it would be impossible to support life the way that, that we see it now. And it points to that and go, it's so unlikely that something like this would happen. Like, does, does that not point to someone uh, who is, you know, transcendent over it, who 
created to be that way because that's the way that he desired it to be. And then you look into, into other things. You, you look into, like, you know, life here on Earth, and, and you go, like, what, what would the planet Jupiter have to do with that? And yet they found that because Jupiter is such a, uh, has such a strong gravit- gravitational pull in our solar system, it attracts, you know, the, so many of the asteroids away from us, and that if Jupiter didn't exist, we'd be getting pummeled, and, you know, probably no life would be here at all. And you just look at all the, the many things that have to be in place for us to be where we are, for life to develop, and it, it just is so fine-tuned, it points to someone who is the fine-tuner of it. And I do want to make a brief side note here because I do think Christians can get into trouble when it comes to the Bible and science. And, uh, and I just want to talk about that briefly um, because what Christians will sometimes do when it comes to the Bible and science is they're going to try and use the Bible in ways the Bible itself isn't, it doesn't want to be used. What I mean by that is uh, everything in the Bible is written by an author with a purpose in mind. They have a meaning that they're trying to convey, and our job is to try and understand the meaning that, that they're conveying. Um, some things in the Bible, the author intends to be received literally. Uh, some things in the Bible are meant to be received as metaphor, uh, because that's just how communication works. It's how we talk to each other, and it's how the Bible communicates as well. And, and sometimes the author in the Bible is just trying to, to make a point. So like a good example of this is when Jesus talks about mustard seeds. In the uh, Gospel of Mark chapter 4, he tells a parable. He says, um, and he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when th- uh, sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. When Christians try to use the Bible as a science textbook, that creates a problem because the mustard seed is not the smallest seed that exists. Poppy seeds are smaller than mustard seeds. But does that mean that the Bible's unreliable? Like, we found a mistake in it, and therefore we can't trust it, and so we should just toss out the whole thing. No, because Jesus isn't teaching about seeds, he's teaching about the kingdom of God. And he's using the mustard seed, and he's speaking in exaggeration to a group of people who are familiar with mustard seeds and what they grow into so that they can understand something that is true about the kingdom of God. Like, it's a very small seed. It becomes a very large plant, and that's going to help you understand about the kingdom of God. And that's the point that he's trying to convey. Part of interpreting the Bible faithfully is trying to understand the author's purpose in what they're writing. And just like a spoiler, essentially no part of the Bible is trying to give you like scientific knowledge about something. It could be incidental, you can, you can, uh, it could be an incidental part of some of the things that are included in it. But like when you get to, uh, for example, the miracles, you know, the, the miracles, they're, they're being um, given to us as these are actual things that really happened and they're really strange and that's why we feel it's noteworthy to tell you. Uh, Galileo has this great quote where he says, uh, the Bible tells you how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. Now, the Bible's not trying to tell you how the heavens work, how the world works, how science works. That's not its purpose. 
as trying to tell you how to go to heaven, how to have a relationship with God. And I know, right, bringing up Galileo is weird in a church because isn't that an example of how entrenched Christians are in their unscientific thinking and, you know, the whole thing that happened with him? Um, I don't think so. I think that's part of a larger collection of examples of a human problem because it, it was the same thing essentially that happened with the, the Big Bang Theory, but in reverse. So before the Big Bang Theory became like a, like a more accepted and uh, you know, pretty widely accepted uh, theory of the scientific community today, there was a lot of resistance to it. Uh, the theory before was that the universe is eternal, had no beginning. And even when there started to become evidence that it actually does point to a beginning, um, it was resisted for a long time in the scientific community because that sounded much too close to Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It was because it actually sounded like something that was in the Bible, the scientific community was, was resisting it. And so it's just something that, that humans do. When you don't do any of the work in interpreting your Bible of trying to see, okay, what is it that the author's actually trying to, uh, to, to communicate? What's the meaning that's actually here? What's the purpose that he's putting in it? Um, you can end up in a spot where you read everything literally, biblical literalism. You take everything literally, and now you have a problem with the mustard seed, and you have other problems, like uh, people believe in a flat earth because they believe the Bible is a, a science textbook. And... Um, and it's disregarding the fact that sometimes in poetry you get imagery, you get metaphor, you get things that are trying to communicate a truth using non-literal images. Uh, or you can go the other way. You can go to the other side of this where you think, you know, the whole Bible is just a, a metaphor. None of it actually happened, but they're just stories and they tell us good general truths that are valuable uh, for, for how you can live your life. And, and that disregards the, you know, the historical narrative parts of the Bible where it is saying this is true, this is something that actually happened, the resurrection of Jesus is real and was a noteworthy event, you know? It's, it's not saying, it's not even pretending that these things are metaphors and it matters that they happened, it matters that they're true. Here's how this might look uh, if, if you're, you know, uh, committed to and using the principle of I want to understand the author's purpose in the Bible and not get myself into kind of a, a sticky place. Um, Genesis chapter 1, the creation of the heavens and the earth. What's the purpose of the author in Genesis chapter 1? The main purpose is to show us that God is the creator of everything. Everything is born from the mind of God. It, is, it comes into existence in accordance with his will, and he's created it very good. That's what Genesis 1 is telling us. Everything comes from God. He created it. He ordered it. He designed it. He made it good. The purpose is not to give you a, a scientific snapshot of how everything looked exactly in, in the creation. It's not what it's trying to do. Again, scientific knowledge can be incidental to what the Bible's trying to do, but it's not the main purpose of it, and that's why I'm in a position where I can say it is a valid biblical interpretation to believe that uh, God created the heavens and the earth in six literal days. That's how it happened. I also believe it's a valid biblical interpretation 
to, to believe that um, the days that Genesis describes are much longer, and it was a process over a long period of time. Right? Those, those are both valid, and you can kind of work through that on, on your own, but don't, in your way of working through that, don't miss the main thing. Don't miss the main purpose of what it's trying to communicate. Right? That's the thing that you're supposed to hold on to. No matter what it looks like specifically, God is the creator. It comes from him. He's the designer. He's the one who ordered all of it. Bible tells you how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. Listen to Galileo for once in your life. Come on, hasn't he suffered enough? Um, the purpose of Psalm 19 and the purpose of Romans 1 is God's fingerprints are all over his creation. He's left the evidence of himself behind that we can see. This is coming from a transcendent mind who put this all together. He's put a purpose to it. There's a purpose to our existence. The heavens are declaring his glory. We can get to know him through the things that he's created. We can know about his eternal power and his divine nature and just how awesome and glorious he is from, from immersing ourselves in the vastness of his creation. That's how we hear about God through his world. Now, how do we hear about God through his word? Psalm 19 continues in verse 7 and says this. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Now, if you're new to Christianity, or if like you were in Christianity, and then you were away, and maybe you're returning, and just kind of exploring, seeing how things are, um, this description of God's word, and particularly about God's law and commandments and rules, that might sound a little off to you, um, because Psalm 19 paints them as like this amazing, wonderful thing in your life, and, and you might be thinking like, isn't that the worst part? <laughs> Like, isn't the rules the worst part? Like, the, the, the forgiveness is great, the eternal life is great, but the rules are not super fun. Like, am I missing something? You know, the, the rules, you learn all the things that you're, you're not allowed to do, and you think, well, maybe I'd like to do some of those things. Uh, or you learn all the things that you're supposed to do, and it's kind of hard to do them, and it requires sacrifice and humility to do those things, and, and that's not exactly a, a blast. Um, it's understandable if you have that perspective when you come to the Bible and when you come to the, the law of God, the, uh, the, the requirements that he places on you for how you are to live your life. Um, because it interferes with you. Like, it messes with you. If you can read the commands of God and they don't mess with your life, you just kind of read through them and you go, okay, yeah, I'm doing all right, I'm on the right track you need to read them again because you read them wrong, okay? The, no one is doing it right. No one is getting it perfect, and it is difficult. It requires difficult change in your life. Repentance is not an easy thing. If we could get it right, we wouldn't have needed Jesus, and we need Jesus. Um, so why does Psalm 19 talk about 
God's law in like these glowing terms. Uh, first, let's look a little bit more into what God's law is and what God's word is, just the whole Bible. Just l- look at the whole thing. Uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he's talking to Timothy, and he says this, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Uh, Paul is encouraging Timothy to continue on in his faith. Paul is in a position where he is about to be executed for his faith. And he's saying, I want you to continue. I want you to grow. I want you to get stronger in your faith. And how do you do that? He says, well, since your childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. That, that's the Bible. It's the word of God. It's the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. All of scripture, all of these sacred writings are breathed out by God and are profitable for you. They can teach you, reprove you, correct you, train you in righteousness. Why can they do that? What's the source? God. They're breathed out by God. And many people will make the, um, make the argument or hold the position that the Bible is a human document. It's a collection of human documents, human authors, and we all know people make mistakes. And so at best, what the Bible represents is here are humans' experiences with God and their thoughts about God. Peter talks about this as, as well. In, uh, in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says this, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And when the prophets were speaking and their words were written down and they became scripture, the source of it wasn't them. It was God speaking through them. It doesn't come from their own imagination. It comes from divine inspiration, divine uh, revelation, that God is revealing this knowledge to people being carried along by the Holy Spirit. What we have in the Bible is the result of the Holy Spirit working through human authors, breathing his own words through them to be written down so we could read them and receive them. The Bible is the word of God, and therefore it is our highest authority. So our job when it comes to the Bible, and you know, this is different than if you are, um, if you're not a Christian and you're at a spot where you're exploring and you're asking questions when you come to the Bible, is this true? Can I believe this? Is this reasonable? And you're kind of working through those things. Like, that's fine. You can work through those things, and that's what you should do. But when you're in a position where you go, I I am a Christian, this is the word of God, when you come to the Bible, your job is not to judge the Bible, whether you agree with it or not, whether you like it or not. Your job is to let the Bible judge you. Because it's God's word. Your, your job is to let it tell you here is where you're not lined up with the will of God. Here is where you need to change. And it's not all that. It's also a, a lot of comfort and encouragement in telling you about the goodness of God and why you can trust him with the things that he says. 
one of the things that is going to help you take that approach when it comes to the Bible, where you read it and you go, I want to know God's word and I want to submit to God's word. Uh, when I know what it says, I want to submit my life. I want to, uh, I want to conform myself to the pattern that God's laying out in scripture. One of the things that's going to help you to do that is Psalm 19. It's the understanding about God that you get from Psalm 19, where we're going to look at the verses again, and I just want to read them again. This is what God's word is able to do for you. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. You should be rejoicing your heart reviving your soul. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. See, this is something you're going to have a problem with if there is in you any suspicion towards God. If you are suspicious that God is in any way out to get you, if he wants, you think he wants to punish you, you think he wants to hold you back in any way, you think he doesn't have your best good in mind. If you have that suspicion, you're not going to be seeing God the way that he wants you to see him, the way that he tells you he is through his word. He has your eternal good in mind. He wants the best for you and what you should see, even when you read the rules and the law and the commandments of God, even when they're not easy and they require much of you, his commands are him telling you, here is how you can build the best life for yourself. Here is the way for you to have the most beautiful and fulfilling and peaceful and joyful life you could possibly have. We have this notion about freedom in America because we're Americans that like freedom is uh, you, you just do what you want to do and no one can tell you no, right? It, it's everything to do with like the freedom from restrictions. But freedom from restrictions is never freedom from consequences. I have the freedom to uh, eat a ton of pizza and eat some hot wings and have a beer while I'm watching the Giants dominate in the fall. Um, but if I choose that, I don't get freedom from massive heartburn and terrible sleep. It's just something I'll have to live with. Freedom from restrictions is not freedom from consequences. Some people think that they are so free and all they're doing is putting chains on themselves that are weighing them down and making them miserable and suffer. It's keeping them from the most fulfilling life they could possibly have. It's not illegal and you have the freedom to uh, let your anger get the best of you and say hurtful words. You could do that. It's not illegal, and you have the freedom to, uh, to initiate a divorce. It's not illegal, and you have the freedom to be selfish, as selfish as you want to be with your life. But if you make certain choices, you could be bringing so much misery and suffering into your own life and into the lives of the people around you, and you're not free from that. 
better way to think about freedom. Real freedom is what is going to give me the, the, the most uh, flourishing in my life I could possibly have. What is going to lead me to have the most peace, the most joy? What's going to give me the most freedom from misery and suffering and guilt and regret and shame and all those things? Where can I get freedom from that? Tim Keller, uh, I love Tim Keller, and he said, he's so helpful to me in thinking through these things. He says, freedom is not no restrictions, it's submitting to the right restrictions. It's like a fish has the most freedom when they restrict themselves to the water that God designed them for. If a fish is going to say, like, I want no restriction, I don't want anyone to tell me what I can do, not even God, uh, I'm going to go live on the land. Fish goes up on the land. How much freedom do they have on the land? They're going to die. And yeah, I guess they died free from restrictions, but they could have had a much more fulfilling and free life in the water. You know, bird is only free when it's restricted to the sky. Train is only free when it's restricted to the tracks. It gets off the tracks, it's not going to go well for the train. You're only free. You only have real freedom when you are restricted to God's will and the design that he has made for your life because he's the creator. He's the source of it all. He's designed it all. And he's speaking to you and telling you, here's how you can have the most beautiful life you could possibly have. That's what God's commands are. And you can read through them and you can just see, man, if the world looked like that, if everyone was submitted to the restrictions that God made, like how much better would life be for everyone? You look at uh, the, the Ten Commandments, just how much more peaceful would my life be if, if, uh, if no one murdered? <laughs> you know, you wouldn't have to worry about that. My, my wife has like this newly reawakened fear of serial killers and like that would just not be. <laughs> But I didn't have to worry about being lied to. I never lied to anyone. How much more simple and uncomplicated would my life be? I don't have to remember things that I said. I could just say whatever because I don't have to remember the things that I said to keep my story straight. How much more secure would families be if there was, there was no such thing as adultery? What a great pattern it would be, you know, honor your, your father and mother if, if what would happen is you would take care of your parents in their old age and you'd be there with them and be there for them and take care of them and you'd know in your own old age that your kids would be there to take care of you and there'd be no one who's forgotten about or isolated. How much more content would you be in your life if you didn't covet if you didn't spend so much of your time looking at things that other people have and going, I wish I had that, I wish I had that, I feel I'm more deserving of that than that person is, and instead you're just grateful for the things that you actually had. So that's the kind of life that God wants for us, and that's the kind of life we were meant to have when he created everything and it was good. And now the world's not like that anymore because mankind, we turned our back on God, we sinned, we broke free from his commands, and now that's in us, and that's part of our nature. And so, like, it's, you know, it's a pipe dream to think that the world is ever going to be like that. Can't control what other people are going to do, and you know people are going to break God's laws. But 
you can be responsible for your own actions and the way that you live your own life, and your own life is going to be simpler and more peaceful and more joyful, and you're gonna be weighed down by less guilt and regret. You're gonna cause less collateral damage when you see the way that God has made for you and you trust him with it and you submit yourself to it. There's great reward in keeping them. And as I said earlier, um, it's not something anyone can do, right? There, there, no one is always going to keep God's commands, that, that sinful nature that's in us. It's part of who we are. And um, we read from Paul in Romans we know that God has revealed his wrath against all unrighteousness, all evil and sin. And so how can Psalm 19 still talk about God's commands and laws and rules in this positive way? How can it still do that when we know it's putting us in a position that we stand condemned? And if we take it seriously, there is the fear of judgment. Remember I said uh, we need to understand the author's purpose in all the things the author has written. We need to understand the purpose of the words that we read in, in the Bible. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 5, Jesus is speaking to some of the Jewish religious leaders. Uh, they're unhappy with him. He's healing someone on the Sabbath, and they say you can't do that. And uh, so he gets a little bit heated, and he says to them, to these, these religious leaders, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So there's a deeper purpose in all of scripture than even the original authors may have been aware of. I think they're aware of what they're hinting at and pointing to, but they don't understand clearly everything about Jesus. But the human authors are not the source of God's word. The Holy Spirit breathing through them is. And the Holy Spirit's purpose in Scripture is to point to Jesus. Jesus says, you think in Scripture you have eternal life. You think it's showing you that if you live this way, if you do these things, if you model your life after God's laws and commands and rules, if you do that, you can have eternal life. You're wrong about that. You're getting the purpose wrong. what it's actually supposed to be doing is confronting them with the reality that they can't live up to it. It's supposed to be driving them to a point where they understand, I need mercy, I need grace, I need a savior. And that's Jesus. Scripture bears witness about Jesus. You know, the Old Testament, what we get is, is our need of Jesus. It points ahead to Jesus, tells us who he's gonna be and what he's gonna do and what he's gonna fulfill. It gives all these promises about Jesus and then in the Gospels, the four Gospels, the accounts of Jesus' life, we get to see him. We see him show up and how he lives and what he does in his ministry. We hear his words and we see what he accomplishes through his crucifixion and his resurrection. And then in the New Testament, it's all pointing back to Jesus because of who he is, because of what he's done, because you can be in a relationship restored with God through him. Here's what life now looks like as we wait for him to come back. But it's all pointing us to Jesus. 
Like the fingerprints of God, the creator over all of, of, of creation, everything we can see in the world, the fingerprints of Jesus are over all of scripture. And we see in his life, he is the one who perfectly keeps all of God's laws and commandments and rules. Psalm 19 says there is great reward in keeping them. What, what Jesus does as he goes to the cross so that he can stand in our place and he makes an exchange with us. He gives to us the reward of his righteous life and he takes on to himself all of our unrighteousness. The unrighteousness of God is revealed, or no, the the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. It's revealed against Jesus on the cross. He takes it on to himself. He pays the price in full so that we can be forgiven. We can be set free. We get the gift of his righteousness. We get the hope of eternal life. We get this new relationship with him. That is how, really, Psalm 19, you look at the laws of God, the commandments, the rules, the testimony, you look at it and you go, this is reviving my soul, this is rejoicing my heart. Because it's showing me Jesus, it's showing me the, the, the immensity of what he's done for me, just how good he is. You refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. Have you come to him? Have you made a decision to put your faith in him and to surrender your life to him? The whole world, all of creation is telling you there's a creator, there's a source of this, there's a transcendent mind who all caused it to be the way that he wanted it to be. He has a design for what he's created and although we've rebelled against it and we look at the vastness of it and we go, I'm so small in all of this. I'm so small and I've even turned my back on him. And yet you are still the object of his love. He loves you. Jesus loves you. Jesus went to the cross for you. Jesus gave you grace. He gave you forgiveness freely as a gift. He gave you the reward of his righteousness. He invites you to be forgiven, to be truly set free, and to then follow him now with your life. Not uh, doing what you want to do and living the way that you want to live and whatever you think is right, but following him trusting God's word, letting God's word guide you and make changes in your life because you trust and you see how he has the best good in mind for you. And in following him and trusting his words, it will free you from as much misery and suffering and regret as your own uh, sinful selfishness would produce if you were not following him. It's not going to set you free from everything. It's not going to set you free from all difficulties in life. But all the extra ones you don't have to deal with if you just trust him, if you just follow him. Come to Jesus that you may have life. I hope for some of you, you make that decision today. Follow Jesus. Some of you need to be 
reminded and re-encouraged. Follow Jesus. Don't make your own way. Trust him. Know his word. Follow his word. His design is the best for your life. It's the best for your marriage, for your kids, for your friendships, for your work. God's word is a treasure. And, and the more you're in it, the more you're going to see Jesus and the more God is going to speak to you. He's going to show you the way that you should go. I hope that we would all hear him and follow him. Let me pray for us.